We're wrapping up this series this week called What Makes You Happy, and so the good news is you do not have to watch that video again. Sorry, that was the third time. The bad news, or I'm sorry, that's the bad news. No, that's good news. The bad news is we're wrapping up the series, and so next week we're starting a series called What Makes You Cranky, and so that'll be, that's not for real. I don't know what we're doing next yet, but here's the deal. For most of us, there's a whole lot of different answers to this question, right? And uh, if you remember, we talked about week one. We, I, I said, if I asked you the question, what makes you happy? We started this, this way last week, too. What might you say to that? No, no. no thing. Some of you remember, some of you don't care. We said no thing. That There's one thing. All of you want to be happy. We all, um, we all enjoy being happy. We want to feel happier. But we said week one that really no thing, nothing, no thing can make you happy. And there's plenty of, um, you get little pleasures here and there, stuff that you buy. But most of the time, happiness has more to do, we said, with who than what. That happiness is more relational than it is possessional. And uh, again, some possessions are fine, but, um, but here's the thing. We all spend more energy and more time and more money on making ourselves happy than we do almost anything else. In fact, you could probably rightly say that many, many people, for many people in our nation, that's what it's all about, right? That's the goal in life is to be Happy, think of the Constitution, life, love, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. It's in our Constitution. And maybe some of you go, is this even biblical? And uh, I said week one that I'm really tying this idea of happiness to joy. But certainly I would say, I, I've even looked this up, that the, the Bible uses the word happy at least 20 times, depending on your translation, 16 or 15 to 20 times. Um, sometimes it's blessed, sometimes it's joy. If you want a good snapshot of happiness in the Bible, read the wisdom literature, read the book of Proverbs or Psalms, look at Ecclesiastes, uses the word happy a lot. Um, Song of Solomon, whoa, we're getting like, there's like other stuff going on, right, in Song of Solomon, I don't know if it uses the word happy, but the wisdom literature is sort of full of this stuff. But we said no thing makes you happy. Last week we talked about how the happiest people are those who uh, have peace with God, right? And the, the way to have peace with others and to have peace with ourselves, the only thing that's going to do that is, that is peace with God. Peace, the, peace with God, we said, paves the way to peace everywhere else. And so it starts there. Happiness starts with peace with God. In fact, I sort of want to say this. If you're still, like, maybe some of you have this, maybe you have this sort of vendetta against the word happy. And, you, and you're, maybe even you grew up in a church where the, uh, sort of what was thought was God wants you to be holy not happy. Has anyone ever heard that? God wants you to be holy, not happy. But I think, I think both really are good. And my definition of happiness would be this, peace, joy, and contentment on the inside. That we would have peace, joy, and contentment on the inside. And like, as I said last week, primarily, foundationally, that starts with God and with peace with God. So tonight we're going to take a little turn. We're going to spend a little time talking about what makes us unhappy. And I've been a pastor long enough that I have seen certain students, sometimes they've talked to me about this, sometimes they haven't, but I've seen them start to go down a road or eventually really, really go down a road where they're going down a path um, and they fall into stuff that just undermines their own happiness, that starts to erode away and starts to uh, just eliminate their happiness. And they don't know that and they think it's going to make them happy, but little by little, I hate to see, it breaks my heart to see students and anybody go down a path in which their happiness is just eroded and starts to wear away. Now, I've discovered what, uh, partly what leads to our unhappiness is confusion over two words. And I'm going to get back to these two. And you maybe go, well, where are we going tonight? And, um, but it's these two words, pleasure and happiness. Think about these two words. What's, 
What's, the, what's your definition in your mind right now? What's your definition of pleasure? And how does happiness and pleasure go together? And do we sometimes get those confused? And so I'm going to get back to that. But let me just clear, I've already said this some, as Christians, we know we are not called to worship happiness. So I already started to say that at the beginning. That's why I gave you the definition. But be careful because many, many people in America, in fact, I heard one pastor say it like this, that he goes, people in America are not on a truth quest, which is, can be hard maybe for pastors who want to give you the word of God, who want to give you truth. He goes, people nowadays are not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And I go, I get that. That's actually true. And we would all maybe say from time to time, yeah, you learn stuff in school. That's true, right? Algebra, whatever you're in, physics, but you just don't care. Am I honest? It's true, but you go, I'm bored. Like, I'm on a happiness quest, but that's tragic because, and again, I guess happiness isn't, or, you know, truth, they don't, we shouldn't pit them against each other, but that's really the case. But Christians should not worship happiness. We should be worshiping God. We should be worshiping Jesus. We know that. But Jesus does not guarantee us a happy life, right? In fact, Jesus says, and I mentioned this, I think, a couple weeks ago, he said, in this life, you will have trouble, Right? Now, nobody writes that verse down and sticks it on their bathroom mirror, do they? In this life, you will have trouble. We all sort of know that, and that's not what you want to be reminded of when you get, wake up in the morning and look at your mirror. So we put nice verses on our mirror. But in this life, you will have trouble. So here's what I'm saying. I don't want you to think this is some sort of, sort of prosperity gospel sort of thing. I am not a believer that if you're a Christian or if you follow God, that suddenly life will go well for you externally, that you'll somehow become wealthy, that uh, good things will happen to you from the outside. You'll, parking spots will just open up for you, Walmart, because you gave your life to Jesus, and that's what happened. I'm not that guy. I will tell you this, that if you become a Christian, I think that internally you will have a new capacity, you will have joy, hope, and peace internally, which is what I'm saying is happiness, that will give you the ability to face the messiness and the ugliness of a very, very dark and sinful world. Okay? Does that make sense? And so we should not worship happiness um, however, God created us with the capacity for happiness. Right? We have the capacity for it. You look at a book of Job, and he had everything taken away, and he was mourning, and he was downtrodden. But what did he want, right? He didn't want to be, like, down in the pit. He wanted to get over this. He wanted answers. You might say he wanted peace with God, and he didn't know what was happening to him. So we have the capacity for happiness. It's not a sin to be happy, and get me, it is not a sin to be unhappy. Don't think there's things wrong with you when you're, like, I mean, maybe it's this chemical imbalance and there's depression and anxiety and that stuff is, I feel like, spreading and growing. That's just like a chemical thing in your brain. But happiness is an emotion, okay? And so again, I'm, I see the difference between that and joy, but it, for, for all intents and purposes, I'm making it synonymous with joy. And so um, there's anger, there's sadness. You see the movie Inside Out, right? Joy. There's all these emotions. Now, Jesus talked about this idea of happiness more than you might think. And some of the things he said are absolutely extraordinary, absolutely like unlike anything uh, anyone has, has ever heard before. Now, one of those places, and we're not going to go there tonight, is uh, in Matthew 5, this, this passage called the Beatitudes. Sometime, you guys, maybe in small group tonight or sometime, look up Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. These are all, they're called the Beatitudes, but Jesus says, Blessed are the, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful Blessed are the pure in heart. And this week, when I looked up that word blessed, and I'd heard this before, and maybe it means well off, but really in the, in the concordance, in the Greek lexicon, the word next to blessed is happy. And that five times in the Bible, that same word blessed or blessed is translated happy. And so Jesus talked about this, Matthew 5, 
But here's one of these extraordinary statements found in the book of John. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard this before. But the book of John, if you uh, have a Bible or a Bible app, turn to John 10, verse 10. already up there, isn't it? Okay, well, there we go. So it says this. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, right? If you grew up in church, and most of you did, you've heard this before. The thief. Now, I don't have time to go into the context greatly. Jesus is having a conversation here with the Pharisees, and probably there was a great crowd around him, and he's using this, uh, this metaphor of the sheep and shepherds, of a gate, of the gatekeeper, and who's allowed in. And so even up in verse 8, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. He says, I am the gate. But then verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, every time I've heard this verse growing up, naturally, the first thing we think of and the first thing many of us apply to this is Satan, that Satan is the thief. And certainly Satan is a thief, and certainly Jesus may have been talking specifically about Satan. But I would say this, that anything, anything, any person, anything that comes into your life that wants to steal your future, that wants to kill your relationships, that ultimately wants to destroy your life, is a thief. Jesus says that's a thief. Anything that wants to steal, or kill, or destroy you, it's a thief. Uh, who in your life, think about this for a second, who in your life has the greatest potential to steal your future? Who in your life has the greatest potential to kill a relationship in your life? Who has the greatest potential to destroy your life? And the answer is the same for all of us, right? And maybe you've seen this coming. Who's the greatest person with the potential? Is it your mom? No, it's not your mom. It's not your dad. It's the person that you wake up every morning and look at in the mirror. It's you. You have more potential to hurt you and to make you unhappy than anybody else. That's the, you, you might say this, that you are your own thief. And there's other thieves, and Satan is a thief, and other people could be thieves, but you are your own thief. Maybe you've heard it said this way before. This is in our own vernacular, right? That you are your own worst enemy. That you're your own worst enemy. That you have the potential to sabotage your own happiness and your own joy and to steal your own contentedness inside than anyone else. And here's how I know that's true, because when it comes to the things in your life that ultimately uh, lead you to the most pain and the most regret, here's the problem, right? And this pertains to me too. You bought it, you said it, you ate it, you drank it. They maybe put it in your hand, but you drank it. You clicked on it, you smoked it, you dated it. You went there. You said yes when you know that you should have said no. It's all something you did. And I have, it's, this applies to me as well. And uh, you, you, you are the common denominator here, right? And again, you go, oh, but it wasn't my fault. Uh, but it's, it's all decisions. It's all choices that you and I have made. Even if you don't have any huge regrets yet at this point in your life, you probably know somebody who made choices for themselves that ultimately hurt them. That you have a friend, that you know somebody, you have an aunt, you have an uncle, you have a cousin, who did something and it ultimately it hurt them. And as you get older, you will have more opportunities and you will be more likely, you guys, to make decisions about things 
that will seal your future, that will kill a relationship, and that may destroy your life. And we know this, right? This isn't like rocket science to any of us. Ultimately, you and I, we are our own worst enemies. But then check this out. God, or Jesus, makes this extraordinary, extraordinary statement. The uh, second half of verse 10. The thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life. As opposed to the thief who wants to steal and kill and destroy, I have come that they may have life. And then he says this, as if that wasn't good enough, you've all heard this before, and have it to the full, right? Now that word full doesn't exactly capture the Greek used here the best, um, I don't think. Maybe if you grew up using the King James Version or even like the ESV, maybe you heard this, ver- this verse put like this, um, Jesus came to give you life uh, and, and uh, he gave it more, to, you may have it more, anyone know this? Abundantly, abundantly. In fact, I looked this word up, I printed this out. The Greek word is uh, parasos. I don't know Greek that well, but I looked this up again online in the concordance. This is the definition in the concordance. Over and above, more than is necessary, exceedingly abundant, superior, extraordinary, surpassing, uncommon. That Jesus came for you to not have an average life. He wants you to have an extraordinary life, exceedingly abundant, superior. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But he says, I want you to have life to the full. But then Jesus goes on, verse 11. He says this, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd, which we go, I don't, what, I don't really care about sheep, it's shepherd, and what's Jesus, I don't, what's going on? But to his context in the first century, his audience would have gone, oh yeah, we all understand this because they had sheep, and half of them were shepherds in the crowd maybe, and shepherds take care of sheep. And so Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Okay, Jesus, how good? How good? He says, the good shepherd does this. The good shepherd, not the average shepherd, because I don't want you to have an average life. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, wow. Lays down his life for the sheep. Now, here's the deal. Jesus cares about your life probably more than you do. And you care about your life a lot, I guarantee. But Jesus knows you inside and out. He cares about your life a ton, so much so that he was willing to give his life for yours. You guys, this is the most radical. I mean, this is the, this is the message of the gospel, right? We talk about this every week. This was not just some grand feat of Jesus, like, oh, whoop good for you. I'm glad Jesus died for me. I don't really know why that matters. Because we talk about this every week. There's sin in this world, and it's a problem. Right? And it creates brokenness. Not just within us, not between us and God, but between us and others, between us and nature. Sin just permeates everything. It's what's wrong with the world. And the Word of God says the wages of sin is death, right? There's this penalty, and it's death, and somebody has to pay that price. And so Jesus took your death penalty for you when he didn't have to, when he was the only person who ever lived who did not sin. And so he was qualified to pay your death penalty for you. And so don't miss this. If somebody is willing to lay down their life for you, they are for you, right? If somebody is willing to lay down their life for you, you guys, they are for you. And we know this. We all know this, but we don't feel it. It doesn't seem to be a reality because we just go in day in and day out and we just don't think or care about God as, as much as we really should. Here's the problem. The problem with Jesus' illustration is this. Yes, he's a very, very good shepherd, but what does that make us, right? Sheep. And so Jesus is not just like some, he's not like the president who's also a human and is just sort of the good role model for us. 
A shepherd to sheep, that's like two if it's an animal. And he's on a, just a different playing level, right, than us. He is God. And we are sheep. And you know what the problem with sheep is? Have you ever heard this? They're stupid. Sheep are dumb. I, I didn't learn that until my freshman year at Grace. We had a, a, a worship intern, that's what Eli does, here at Brookside. We were serving in tribe. And Jared Strzok was from Wyoming. And his, his family uh, farmed sheep. And he was like, he, told, he used this one, it's an illustration. He was like, Brad, sheep are really stupid. They're just dumb. And, uh, and I know that's maybe offensive, um, but Jesus' point is clear. Even though God wants a good, full, abundant life for you, for us, we're like sheep and we make dumb decisions, right? And we hurt ourselves. And in, in the end, very, very often, we undermine our own happiness. Here's why I know this. Because I do this and you do this. As I already said, you bought it, you said it, you ate it, you drank it. You clicked on it, you looked at it, you said yes, you smoked it, you dated it. Here's the thing, you and I, we make bad decisions. I just thought that earlier, but it was like, that might be cute. We're dumb. We are dumb, like sheep. And we make dumb decisions. So why do we act like sheep? As we said at the beginning... We confuse these two words. And so this is true for everyone, whether you're a Christian or not. But we confuse pleasure for happiness. And this may come as a a surprise to you, but God created both of these things as good and as right. He created pleasure. He created fun and laughter. He created food that you enjoy. He created sex. You knew I was going to go there because when you hear the word pleasure, that's what some of you maybe think of. God created sex. At one point, he's creating everyone and he goes, I have a great idea. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to make man and woman, and he already maybe made the animals sexual, but he's, he's like, this is going to be awesome. And the angels were like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you wouldn't get it. He creates <laughs> sex. But in all kinds of ways. Maybe it's not, maybe for you it's shopping. What is your definition of pleasure? I want you to talk about that in small groups tonight. How do these two things go hand in hand? But here's the deal. God is not against pleasure. He's not against happiness. Finding pleasure in something or enjoying something is not in itself sinful. It can be, but it also uh, might not be. The problem is priority. We confuse the two, and many, many times we pursue pleasure over happiness. And here's what I'm trying to say to you, that happiness must take priority over pleasure. Because happiness, I believe, in the long run, will give to you and I ultimate pleasure in this life. And I'm not just talking... But we need to prioritize happiness. If you only pursue pleasure, you will end up with neither pleasure nor happiness. If you start with happiness, someday in the end, and I'm going to tell you why, you will have pleasure. Why? Because the law of diminishing returns, right? When you start, whoever it is, maybe it's your dad, maybe it's your uncle, this is an illustration. It started with just half a bottle. But then it turned into one bottle, then it turned into two bottles, then it turned into five bottles, and you don't know what happened to you last night, right? The law of diminishing returns, that things that are pleasurable eventually lose their pleasure and become a prison. And you need more, and you need more, and you need more. And you have to eat more, and drink more, and buy more, and consume more in order to get the same joy out of it that you used to feel. And so one more thing, one more scripture passage. The Apostle Paul, who came along about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, takes the teachings of Jesus and contextualizes them. This is what he wrote to the Christians in Rome. So he says this. This is chapter 6 in Romans, verse 16. Just one verse. And I love how Paul starts like this. He says, Don't you know 
as if like, this is common sense. He's going, like, really? Don't you guys know? You all know this already. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone or something as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? And some of you go, no, I didn't know that. What the heck is he talking about? All this obey slave language. We're, we don't have slaves. Let me read it again. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves, sure, I'll do that. Yes, I'll go to that party. Yes, I'll take that. I'll click that. I'll, yes, when you offer yourselves to someone something as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. If you continue to say yes to certain pleasures, and I'm not, this doesn't have to be illegal, doesn't have to be immoral, might be. It could be any pleasure. When you prioritize any pleasure and say yes to it over and over again, don't you realize that you are, you're obeying it? You're becoming a slave of that thing. It's like you're a slave. And again, you go, well, what's the problem with that? Because he goes on, he says this, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, that's the problem right there, or slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness. We talked about that word last week, right? It means a right relationship with God. What we all need is a right relationship with the Father. And so he goes, it's de- it depends what you're a slave to. Either way, you're going to be a slave to something. You can offer yourselves as slaves to sin, or you can offer yourselves to obedience to Christ. But no matter what, you are going to say yes to something. You can either obey pleasure which will eventually kill your happiness, or you can obey the good shepherd who wants a full, abundant life for you. And if you prioritize happiness now, you can have both later on. Either way, you're obeying something. So again, what are you chasing? What are you going after? Um, Now here's the thing. Numerous times in the Bible, the Apostle Paul uses this language of sowing and reaping. Sowing, you, you guys know this, sowing is basically planting something, reaping is basically harvesting. And so we need to make a decision. We can sow happiness now and reap pleasure and happiness later, or we sow pleasure now and we reap unhappiness later. You guys, I am not against pleasure, but again, I'm telling you, it's that law of diminishing return. The more you want it, the more you, you all know what I'm talking about. There are certain things in your life that the more you try it, the more you've gone there, the more you've done that, it just hasn't filled you up anymore, which is why certain things become addictive. They become habits, but then they become addicts. And you all know people who have fallen into things like that. Because, um, well, let me put it like this. Here's sort of my main point for the night. If you sow better, you'll reap better. If you sow better, you will reap better. Because isn't it true that we get in trouble when we're unhappy? The minute any of us feel unhappy, we just want something, don't we, to sort of pick us up? We hate feeling unhappy. And again, maybe that's a sign that we worship happiness, but nobody likes to be sad or grumpy or just feel down and depressed. So we tend to sow pleasure. When we're unhappy, we immediately do stuff that makes us feel better, and we sow pleasure. And so I'm unhappy, so I'm going to go shopping. I'm unhappy, so I'm going to drink this. And I'm not just talking about alcohol. For many of us, you guys, I do this. It's caffeine, right? I feel down, so I'm going to run to a Red Bull, to a Monster, Starbucks, coffee makes me feel good. We all do this. And then, oh, now I need a grande, and now I need a venti, and now I've just lost $20, right? Because it's crazy expensive. I'm going to drink this. I'm unhappy, so I'm going to watch this. Might not be pornography. Might be. 
might just be, I feel lazy, I want to avoid doing my homework, I'm going to binge watch something on Netflix, I'm going to just, wa- I'm, I'm, I feel lazy, so I'm going to watch TV, and we're addicted to TV. I'm unhappy, so I'm going to stop by his house, because I know certain people are going to be there, and they're going to be doing something that I know they're going to be doing, and I can partake in that. I'm unhappy, so I'm going to start Snapchatting him or her, because they, he or she, makes me feel better. And we make decisions that ultimately undermine our happiness. You guys, I'm over time, but let me say this. This is so huge. Jesus basically tells us there is no quick fix to happiness. That happiness is not immediately accessible. You cannot read a book. I'm sorry, I wish I was this good. You cannot come to Oasis and hear a talk on happiness and suddenly feel happy. It is not immediately accessible. You sow and you reap your way there. And again, I'm not talking about pleasure. I'm talking about my definition of happiness, which was peace, joy, and contentment on the inside that comes from peace with God. It is not immediately accessible, and so we sow and reap our way there. Following Jesus gives you peace, joy, and contentment on the inside, and that is happiness. If you sow better, you will reap better in the future. And you guys are young enough, and many of you do not have the regrets that others of us in this room have. Ask your, your small group leader about that tonight. They'll tell you a story or two. I guarantee it. You are young enough. You have choices. And in fact, you are at the perfect age. Your parents aren't making every decision for you anymore. And you are starting to be at the perfect age where you are making decisions on your own. And that's, that's a blessing, but it's also an immense responsibility. You guys, I want to ask you one last final tough application question. And it's because I care about you. But tonight, please, please think of this right now. Here's the question. Is there a pleasure in your life that's stealing or sabotaging your happiness? And you know it. And you've known it for half the summer. Is there a pleasure that's stealing or sabotaging your happiness? It doesn't have to be a sin, although it might be. It doesn't have to be illegal or immoral, although it might be. But there's something that you're running to right now. Think about that pleasure. What is that thing that you started out thinking would make you so happy and now is not making you happy? In fact, you feel like a slave. You feel in bondage to that thing, and you want to be free from it. But you thought it would make you happy. Let me put it this way. Is there a pleasure that is slowly taking you prisoner? You guys, by the grace of God, and you need, uh, you need people to surround you to help you with this. So maybe tonight in small group, I don't know who it is. Talk to me. Talk to your small group leader afterwards tonight. Go home and talk to your parents. But you need to surround yourself with people that will listen to your thing and they will say to you, me too. Maybe not that, but I have something else. And that's the greatest thing you could hear from somebody. And so again, you are at this perfect age to decide what kind of life you want to live. And you guys, if you sow better, you'll reap better. So my hope and my prayer is that you would run to Jesus tonight and let him make you happy. Let me say a quick prayer. God, um, I just thank you that your word addresses this. Father, that Jesus came saying, I did not come to steal and kill and destroy. The thief does that. God, many times we do that ourselves. We make poor decisions and we are our own worst enemy. But Jesus, you make it perfectly clear. You came to give us life, but not just life, abundant life. Life to the full. God, give us just a glimpse of that tonight. May we believe that you really have that for us, that you offer us grace, that this should not make us feel guilty tonight, but you say, I give you grace and I paid the penalty for your sin and there's nothing but freedom for you. 
So God, will we run to you tonight and will we receive that? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.